Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center. Before we start, I want to share with you an exciting new crowdsourcing campaign to support our We the People and Live at the NCC podcast. This great program, like all of our town hall programs, will be podcasted on the Live at the NCC feed. And every week on We the People, I convene America's top scholars from different perspectives to talk about the constitutional issues in the week. Friends, it is so meaningful to be able to learn from these civil, deep, and great conversations. We had one recently about the Gettysburg Address, and it was just so civil and so meaningful that I want you to listen to them. And I also want you to support the podcast by going to constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people and make a donation of any amount, $5, $10, just to signal your support in this community of lifelong learners who are devoted to nonpartisan education about the Constitution. And your gift will be matched, thanks to the John Templeton Foundation, up to $234,000 to celebrate the 234th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution. So please do make a donation and tell your friends about it. Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. November marked the 158th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, one of Abraham Lincoln's most famous speeches. To honor the occasion, we convened three experts to take a deep dive into the words of Lincoln, discuss his constitutional vision, and examine how that vision changed the course of the Constitution and American history. Our guests are Michael Burlingame, author of The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African Americans, and the Pursuit of Racial Equality, Noah Feldman, author of The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America, and Diana Schaub, author of His Greatest Speeches, How Lincoln Moved the Nation. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on November 30th, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Michael Burlingham, let us begin with you. Tell our friends why you argue in your new book that Lincoln was the black man's president. And you, ha- you have several speeches of uh, Frederick Douglass the, that you begin with, including an 1865 eulogy on Lincoln, uh, where he said, no people, class of people in the country have a better reason for lamenting the death of Lincoln than have the colored people. What is the significance of that speech? And why do you believe that Lincoln was the black man's president? Well, thank you very much for your kind introduction, and thank you for inviting me. I feel a little out of place because my book is focused, the the central theme of my book is, let's not focus on Lincoln's speeches and writings and policies and the like. Let's focus on Lincoln's interaction with black people, both in Springfield and in Washington. Uh, But the title of the book comes from a eulogy that Frederick Douglass delivered on June 1st, 1865 in Cooper Union, the premier site in the country to give a major speech. And it was covered widely in the New York press. Uh, but it's been unaccountably uh, ignored by historians and anthologists of Douglas's speeches. And in this remarkable speech, he says, Abraham Lincoln was preeminently the black man's president, the first to rise above the prejudices of his time and his country. By inviting me, Frederick Douglass, to the White House to consult on public affairs, Lincoln was saying by that gesture that I am the president of the black people as well as the white, and I mean to honor their rights as men and citizens. And it's a striking contrast to the speech that is very well known, widely anthologized, and uh, commented on uh, regularly 
And that is a speech he gave 11 years later at the dedication of a statue, the Emancipation Memorial in Washington, in which he said Abraham Lincoln was preeminently the white man's president. And I remember when I first encountered the speech in the Douglas Papers in manuscript, I was, I was astounded. I said, surely I would have seen this speech in the five-volume edition of Douglas's speeches that the Yale Press published or, or the four-volume study that uh, Philip Foner had, uh, anthology that Philip Foner had. And I went back to those sources and that speech wasn't included. That got me thinking about Lincoln and race in general. And then Kate Mazur, a very fine historian at Northwestern University, published an article recently on the White House receptions and black people's attendance at White House receptions. And uh, in my 2,000-page biography, I had a little bit to say about that, but I thought, jeepers, how did I miss so much of the good information that she has unearthed? And so I decided to plunge deeper into that subject, and then that led me deeper and deeper into Lincoln's uh, interaction with black people back in Springfield and in Washington. And uh, lots of people know about Lincoln's interaction with Frederick Douglass because Douglass described them in his autobiographies in some detail. But little has been done about Lincoln's interaction with other black people. And so thanks to the enormous uh, utility of modern word-searchable newspaper databases, I was able to dig up a lot of new information. Everything I've written needs to be updated thanks to these databases. And so what I've found is that both in Springfield and in Washington, Lincoln interacted with a large number of of black people, all of whom commented on how respectful he was, uh, how kind and how generous. uh, And it wasn't just courtesy, but it was also gestures and actions um, based on appeals that they made. Uh, that indicates, to my way of thinking, that Lincoln was an instinctive a racial egalitarian. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for calling our attention to the tremendous significance of digitized primary texts, which have indeed transformed historical research and our understanding of Lincoln. Uh, Noah Feldman, you've argued so powerfully in your book that the original Constitution of 1787 was broken. And as you put it in the New York Times, Uh, Lincoln fatally injured the Constitution of 1787. He consciously and repeatedly violated core elements of the Constitution, and they'd been understood by nearly all Americans of that time. And through these active destructions, Lincoln effectively broke the Constitution of 1787, paving the way for something very different to replace us. Tell us more about your thesis in The Broken Constitution. Thank you, Jeff. Um, It's an honor to to be here with these distinguished scholars. Um, I am a Constitution's person rather than a Lincoln person, so I came from the standpoint of the Constitution itself. And um, among those of us who work on the founding in 1787, it's, for the most part, there might be one or two exceptions, commonly accepted that the Constitution was a compromise document in which one of the central compromises was a compromise over slavery. And so we have the Three-Fifths Compromise, famously, We have the guarantee that the international slave trade would remain for at least 20 years. And we also have the Fugitive Slave Clause, um, which effectively required the states that did not recognize slavery on their own to acknowledge and recognize slavery itself. So that's the setting for the way the Constitution functioned from that time up until the Civil War. There were moments where the constitutional compromise seemed near breaking, but Congress, for the most part, managed to reinscribe that compromise with new variations. The Missouri Compromise is the most famous example of this. And Lincoln actually very much supported that structure of constitutional compromise throughout his political career. Because we're mentioning um, speeches of Lincoln, I'll mention in this context just very briefly something which Diana has written about very extensively. Lincoln's address to the uh, Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield in 1838, 
The only passage I want to mention from that um, in a speech where Lincoln was actively defending the Constitution is Lincoln's statement there that we should beware of people like Alexander the Great or like Caesar or like Napoleon, who in their seeking of greatness would be willing to enslave free men or to free enslaved people. That is to say, an act that would be extraordinary and outside the bounds of constitutional norms would be wrongful. He's clearly against this. And that's because the Constitution as it then existed legally mandated the continued existence of slavery in those states that chose to have slavery. So that's Lincoln's view. And once he becomes president, he confronts the reality that there have been secessions by, at that point, seven states. And he has to decide what to do about that. And of course, that secession is a fundamental breaking of the Constitution. And Lincoln responded by himself breaking the Constitution in, I argue, three ways, which I'll just mention each very briefly. Um, the first is sort of surprising. We don't necessarily think of it as breaking the Constitution. But the decision to go to war unilaterally to obligate the seceding states to return to the Union was not, under contemporary constitutional norms, an obvious authority or right of the presidency or even of the whole government. The Buchanan administration, in an official opinion by the Attorney General, embraced by Buchanan in his State of the Union address, had said that although secession was revolution, the President, Congress, indeed no part of the federal government, had the authority to force the states back into the Union, because nothing in the Constitution explicitly authorized it, and because of the principle of consent of the governed. And on this principle, the Southerners in those states had chosen to no longer give their consent to be governed, and so it violated that principle of consent to coerce them back in. Lincoln unilaterally, and then eventually with the support of Congress, took up arms to force them back in. The second breaking was the suspension of habeas corpus, which is the right that says if the government grabs you up, it has to appear in court, give a reason, put you on trial, and if you're not convicted, let you go. And Lincoln unilaterally suspended habeas corpus early uh, in the war and kept that suspension in place even after the Supreme Court via the Chief Justice, or at least the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Taney, issued an opinion saying that this was unconstitutional because only Congress has the authority to suspend habeas. And I would say that that is still the view uh, of almost all constitutional scholars. And the Supreme Court itself, after the war, also repudiated the idea that um, without a suspension by Congress, that martial law could be applied within the United States where no war was going on. And Lincoln did that. He did it extensively. And he imprisoned somewhere between 15 and 40,000 people. There's a lot of debate about how many um, over the course of the war without trial um, and without the opportunity to, to appear in court. This was the largest suppression of free expression in American history by a huge margin. And last but not least, um, and much more upliftingly, Lincoln also broke the Constitution as he understood it when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, formally freeing enslaved people in areas that were under Confederate control. Lincoln himself, when the war began, reiterated his commitment to the idea that um, slavery was constitutionally protected. So I think we'll probably talk a little bit tonight about his second inaugural address and the Gettysburg Address. Those are the two that you see when you go into the Lincoln Memorial on either side of the enshrined president, enshrined as a god. So after all, the Lincoln Memorial is based on a, an Athenian temple. We never hear about the first inaugural address. And that's because the first inaugural address opens with Lincoln saying, that he has neither the will nor the inclination nor the constitutional power to change slavery, which he says is protected by the Constitution. And Lincoln, over time, shifted in his view. And in my book, I spent a lot of detailed time trying to show that shift. And he came to believe that it was somehow within his authority as president, as commander in chief in wartime to break the guarantee of property rights 
uh, break the Fugitive Slave Clause, which quite literally would have said that anyone who escaped uh, would have to be returned to slavery. And under the conditions of the war, Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation said that people who escaped would not be returned and would in fact become permanently free. So those are that's a morally good breaking of the Constitution in my view, but a breaking nevertheless. Thank you so much for that uh, wonderful summary of your book and for calling our attention to the first inaugural. Uh, Diana, your your project is so inspiring to really do close readings of uh, the Lyceum Address and the Gettysburg Address and the, and the second inaugural. Uh, there's there's so much here, and of course we don't uh, we can't parse the whole thing, but this theme uh, that Noah mentioned of the rule of law and also the conflict between reason and passion uh, jumps out, but there may be other aspects of it that you want to call our attention to. So tell us about how we should read the Lyceum Address. Yeah, maybe I can just uh, for a minute just say something about the overall thesis of the book and then uh, and then turn to the Lyceum. So yeah, the, the book is uh, uh, a close reading, uh, I believe in close and careful reading of three Lincoln speeches. Uh, first, the Lyceum Address, the speech that he gave as a, as a young man, uh, and then the two most famous presidential addresses, uh, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. And actually, what, I, what I'm struck by is how how often uh, Lincoln anchored his speeches in dates, in significant dates. Uh, so the Lyceum Address uh, begins with the Constitution uh, and the date of 1787. The Gettysburg Address, as everyone knows, uh, four score and seven years ago, uh, takes us to 1776, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, that's what the Gettysburg Address is anchored in. And then the second inaugural, uh, and I don't think this has maybe been noted enough, but it is actually anchored in 1619. Uh, if you do the math, uh, the reference to 250 years of the slave's unrequited toil, uh, that takes you to 1615. Uh, he's, of course, rounding the number off. So Lincoln is aware of the origin date uh, of slavery on the American continent. Uh, so uh, I argue that Lincoln really tells the story of America and helps us understand America through these three significant dates, those two texts and the relationship between those texts and slavery in the United States. Uh, so I think the second inaugural really uh, deserves to be known as, uh, as the original and actually better uh, 1619 project. Uh, so, uh, but to go to the, uh, the Lyceum Address, the speech that he gives uh, as, a, as a very young man, I think it's a remarkable address. Uh, it's a diagnosis of the uh, dangers that Lincoln sees abroad in the land at the time, uh, and a more general diagnosis of the problems that democracy is always prone to. So uh, what Lincoln notes is the growing prevalence of mob rule throughout the nation. So there's kind of breakdown of law and order. Uh, and this breakdown is triggered, I mean, he's not talking about um, you know, looting, and rioting, uh, he's talking about vigilante justice, uh, acts of vigilantism. Uh, so these vigilantes are driven by their passion for justice, uh, but they are, you know, running roughshod over the uh, due process and uh, and rule of law. Uh, so Lincoln uh, highlights this danger, he gives this diagnosis, uh, and then he proposes a solution. And his solution is reverence 
uh, for the Constitution and laws. Uh, so his recommendation is law abidingness and not simply law abidingness, but a particular uh, attitude in which one obeys the laws, uh, this uh, attitude of, of reverence. So that's his diagnosis of the sort of the present danger. But the second half of the speech is not about the present danger, but about future dangers. Uh, and this is where Lincoln's analysis of passion is really developed. And here he goes back to a famous distinction uh, that the ancient uh, political philosophers always use, the distinction between the few and the many. Lincoln says, uh, what happens if a person of the founding type springs up after the founding? What is that person going to do? What outlet uh, for their vast ambition will be available? Uh, and this is where he gives his warning against the Alexanders, the Caesars, uh, and the Napoleons. Uh, those who won't be content to be, you know, the uh, the 41st or the 42nd or the 43rd president of the United States. Uh, they're not content to be a custodian in the house of the fathers. And uh, this ambition is presented as morally neutral. Um, if there are good avenues to pursue, like the uh, freeing of the slaves, that might be done. Uh, if the avenues of the good have uh, already been uh, trod, uh, they will set boldly forth enslaving free men. Uh, so there's this uh, this problem of inordinate ambition, uh, and then there's also a problem on the part of the many, and that is these uh, negative passions of human nature, jealousy, envy, uh, hatred, revenge. And Lincoln says at the time of the founding, those passions were able to be harnessed toward good ends. Uh, you could hate the British and uh, achieve liberty for yourself, but now and in the future, uh, those passions will be dangerous. Uh, so, I mean, his um, denunciation of passion is very strong. You know, passion may have helped us, but can do so no more. Uh, in the future, passion will be our enemy. Uh, I think it is significant to note, though, that Lincoln always means by passion the negative passions. Uh, so, for instance, he doesn't mean bonds of affection. He doesn't mean friendship. Uh, you can look at actually the uh, you know the first inaugural, which also says passion is the problem. Think of that last paragraph. Uh, you know, passion may have strained the bonds of affection, but uh, we don't want it to uh, you know to separate us. So his solution then uh, for the for this future danger uh, is reason. So he's got a double diagnosis: uh, mob rule. Uh, the present danger, uh, future danger, this problem of the passions, and then a double solution. Um, the solution to the problem of mob rule is reverence for the Constitution and laws. Uh, the solution to these dangers ahead of inordinate ambition and runaway passion is reason. I uh, should probably stop there, but I try to explain uh, how these two uh, solutions could perhaps fit together. How can he recommend both reverence and reason? That was wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And I, it's so fascinating to read it closely with you. And you've helped me understand how deep the classical influence was because these vices of hate and avarice and envy are indeed the classical ones. He talks about the ruling passion, which was from Cicero and Aristotle, and it's always <laughs> negative uh, and, it, and reason has to constrain it. And then we see, as you, as you say, that the ambition manifested by Caesar and Alexander are negative examples. So thank you. Always learn so much when you read closely and thanks for inspiring us to do that. All right. Well, we're now going to, for this next round, use the Gettysburg Address as a jumping off point, but I don't want to constrain us to close reading, but it is the um, anniversary in November of the address and it would be wonderful to hear how does the Gettysburg Address fit into your thesis that 
uh, Lincoln was uh, the black man's president. And, and what, what do you want to tell us about the Gettysburg Address? It's been argued by some, including uh, fine commentators, that uh, it's striking that the Gettysburg Address doesn't say anything about slavery. The word slave, slavery doesn't appear. But it does seem clear to me that the new birth of freedom that Lincoln refers to in the Gettysburg Address is a, a direct <laughs> allusion to emancipation uh, and presumably beyond that of uh, first-class citizenship. So even though the address doesn't have a great deal to say about race and, and uh, the like, but the implication of a new birth of freedom does seem to herald not just uh, the complete emancipation uh, extended not just to the Confederate states, but throughout the country, which happens with the 13th Amendment, but also by implication the 14th Amendment uh, and the 15th Amendment establishing civil rights for blacks and then voting rights for blacks is, is implicit in that notion of a new birth of freedom. And Lincoln's support for black voting rights, for example, um, which wasn't articulated publicly until his last public address, which, of course, he didn't know was going to be his last public address on April 11, 1865, in which he called for the first time for black voting rights, at least limited black voting rights, that is to say, those who had served in the armed forces and those who were very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. Now, he had privately recommended that to the governor of Louisiana, which was the uh, model in Lincoln's mind for reconstruction. What can the North expect the South to do to rehabilitate itself politically after the war? And so uh, in Louisiana, he had worked very hard to get something like black civil rights or voting rights included, working behind the scenes. And then he writes a letter upon having been visited by two black gentlemen from New Orleans bearing a petition signed by a roughly a thousand men in New Orleans who said, look, we are literate, we are property owners, we are taxpayers, and we would like the right to vote. And Lincoln tells them, well, under our constitution, the eligibility requirements for voting are established by states and not by the federal government. So um, I'm very sympathetic, uh, but you really have to get this constitutional convention, which is about to meet in Louisiana, to agree to do that. And so, so he says that to these gentlemen, but then he takes a step further. He writes a letter to the governor, newly elected governor of Louisiana, saying, uh, I suggest that in the new constitution that is going to be drawn up, uh, you include voting rights at least for uh, the veterans of the Union Army and the very intelligent. And the fact that Lincoln then, as part of this new birth of freedom, publicly announces that two days after Robert E. Lee surrenders, is noteworthy because it means he's shifting away from a rather moderate position on, on Reconstruction to a much more radical position. And Frederick Douglass said that uh, I was in that audience that day on April 11, 1865, and I was disappointed in the scope of the recommendation for black voting rights because it was so limited just to the veterans of the armed forces and the very intelligent. And many of my abolitionist friends were also disappointed. But we should have recognized that that was uh, an extremely important speech because Abraham Lincoln learned his statesmanship in the school of rail splitting. And to split a rail, you take a wedge and you insert the thin edge of the wedge into the log and then you drive it home with a big hammer, a maul. And we should have known that once Abraham Lincoln inserted the thin edge of the wedge publicly, that you could count on him to drive home the thick edge of the wedge. Uh, but there was one gentleman in the audience who did appreciate its significance, and that was John Wilkes Booth. And he said, that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he's ever going to give. By God, I'm going to run him through. And three days later, murdered Lincoln, not because he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which is here in my tie, uh, and not because he supported the 13th Amendment, 
but because he called for black voting rights. And therefore, I think it's appropriate for us in the 21st century to regard Lincoln as a martyr to black civil rights as much as Martin Luther King or Medgar Evers or any of those people who were murdered in the 1960s as they championed the civil rights revolution of that time. Noah Feldman, you write that the use of biblical language and imagery in the Gettysburg Address marked a great change for Lincoln, who's a non-religious rationalist, and he could now describe the aims of the war, the Union, and the Constitution in new moralized terms. And you very provocatively argue that the idea of new birth invoked the teaching of rebirth in Christ. Tell us about that fascinating reading of the Gettysburg Address and what else you want our friends to learn about the Gettysburg Address, and you can also introduce any other speeches that you think are important to help us understand the thesis of your of your book. Well, let me start by saying that plenty of people have looked at the Gettysburg Address and seen classical Greek overtones, and those are unquestionably there. Gary Wills famously drew attention very actively to this. But the speech is also suffused with biblical language and a biblical idea of morality. And it's the beginning, in my view, of Lincoln articulating his own moral vision of the entire history of the United States. And in the second inaugural address, which maybe we'll come to in our next round of conversation, he's most explicit about doing that. But in my view, he's starting to do that in the Gettysburg Address. And you know, the, the three score and seven is self-consciously biblicizing, it's biblical. And to Americans in the 19th century, almost all of whom were Protestants, biblical language meant general morality. 19th century Americans believed that Morality was derivative of the Bible. They were, as I say, heavily Protestant, and Protestants thought that you should read the Bible, and through the Bible, you would get access directly to morality. Lincoln could not interpret the history of the United States in these moral terms, or the Constitution in these moral terms, so long as the Constitution enshrined slavery, which he knew to be a moral wrong. So up until the Emancipation Proclamation, he was committed to the Constitution under the rule of law principles that Diana was talking about, but that meant he was committed to a compromise that included a compromise with immorality. And that put him in a contradictory situation. After emancipation, he was now able to describe the Constitution as fundamentally moral. So when he said that our country was not only conceived in liberty, but dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, he could not have said that about the Constitution until he broke the Constitution, because the Constitution wasn't dedicated to that proposition, because the Constitution enshrined slavery. Once emancipation was an established fact, by Lincoln, he could reconceptualize the country in these terms. And this is where the new birth of freedom part comes in. New birth is a very resonant phrase for 19th century American Protestant Christians, all of whom I think would have recognized immediately the idea of new birth in Christ. Now, I'm not arguing here that Lincoln was making a consciously Christian argument. What I'm saying is he was drawing upon the common thread of Protestant moral thought, which was derivative of Christian ideas, to express a new idea. And the idea here was that just as the Old Testament had been superseded by Christian liberty in the New Testament, so the new birth of freedom would supersede the slavery present in the original constitution, so that the country would then be reborn, and he plays out this idea more fully in the second inaugural address, as a moral country one that therefore could be in proper fulfillment of the ideals of morality that were present in the original um, Declaration of Independence on Lincoln's reading, but were not present in the Constitution. So that, I think, is the explanation for why Lincoln was able to use this kind of religious language, both in the Gettysburg Address and ultimately in the Second Inaugural. It's because he was freed up to do so by emancipation, which ended the immoral qualities of the Constitutional Compromise. 
and opened the possibility of a, of a moral accounting. And of course, that was very appropriate at a funeral. It was, after all, in a way, a commemorative funeral oration for people who had died. And eventually, in the second inaugural, Lincoln would give specific sacral meaning to the deaths of the people who had died fighting the Civil War. Diana Shaw, we almost know it by heart. Uh, what should we know about the Gettysburg Address? Yeah, I just want to maybe begin uh, by just saying that I agree with Noah about the um, presence of the biblical language uh, in the Gettysburg Address, and of course, even more so in the second inaugural. Uh, but I don't think that's new. Uh, in fact, I think that's present in his rhetoric from the beginning. I mean, you see it at the very end of the Lyceum Address, uh, where he quotes from the Bible, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, it draws a connection between the only greater institution, the church, uh, and the United States. Uh, you see in the Dred Scott speech, where he actually puts the United States in the position of Pharaoh and the uh, enslaved blacks in the position of the enslaved Hebrews. Uh, you see it in the House Divided speech. Uh, that, that itself is a biblical phrase. Uh, House divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, so I think that's always been, been present uh, in, in his rhetoric. Maybe just a word about the relationship between Lincoln's thinking about the uh, Constitution and the Declaration. So I argued that the Lyceum Address is anchored in the Constitution. Uh, and I think that Lincoln is a dedicated constitutionalist. Uh, and unlike Noah, I believe he remains a dedicated constitutionalist. Nonetheless, it's true that as the crisis over the House divided develops, uh, Lincoln's attention in the speeches in the 1850s uh, shifts from the Constitution to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, this actually begins in 1852 with the eulogy to Henry Clay. Uh, he begins that speech by saying, on the 4th of July, 1776. And in every one of the great speeches that he delivers throughout the 1850s, he recurs to the Declaration. I think the reason that he has to do that, in other words, the reason that his textual horizon shifts uh, is because Americans in the 1850s are beginning to repudiate uh, the self-evident truths of the Declaration. They're doing this in an outright manner in people like Calhoun and his followers uh, who have taken to calling the self-evident truths self-evident lies. Uh, and they're doing it in other ways, more insidiously, um, uh, folks like Stephen Douglas uh, and Roger B. Taney. So I think as those repudiators of the principle of liberty for all uh, become stronger, Lincoln has to demonstrate their error. And so throughout the 1850s, uh, he appeals to the Declaration in speech after speech, and not just appeals to it, but gives explications of the Declaration, what properly understood it does mean. Uh, so it's only by readopting the Declaration uh, that the challenge posed by slavery and slavery's uh, extension uh, can be met. Uh, and I think that his decade of reflection on the meaning of the of the Declaration really reaches its culmination in the Gettysburg Address and really that 30-word sentence uh, <laughs> with which he begins uh, the Gettysburg Address. Uh, and it's quite remarkable that post-Gettysburg, Lincoln does not again recur to the Declaration. Uh, it's as if his thought about it had achieved its final form, and that's the statement that he wants to remain and that he wants uh, all Americans to memorize. One other point about the new birth of freedom. Uh, I agree uh, that it makes sense to read the new birth of freedom as a reference to emancipation and the steps that will follow emancipation. But I also believe that 
perhaps the more fundamental meaning of the new birth of freedom uh, is that if the union is victorious, then the heretical uh, suggestion of secession uh, and that argument that was made for secession will be refuted. Uh, and that that refutation itself constitutes a new birth of freedom. In other words, that, that's what's necessary to return to the, uh, the original meaning of the founding charters. I don't know that that's the usual way of reading it, but I, I think it fits with what Lincoln says about the meaning of the war in other places, uh, where he says the real meaning of the war is so that Americans uh, will have the proper understanding of the relationship between ballots and bullets. Uh, once you agree to be bound by ballots, uh, you don't get to have recourse back to bullets. That, that these, it's basically a lesson in democratic theory. Our last text is the second inaugural. I'm going to give myself the great pleasure uh, I get to do as moderator of reading the famous last sentence, which we all do know, and then ask each of you to uh, give us your thoughts on the speech. Uh, here we go with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Oof. Michael Burlingham, what should we know about the second inaugural? Well, the final paragraph, of course, is the one that people know best. But Frederick Douglass, in that remarkable speech that I mentioned earlier, the, the eulogy of June 1st, 1865, says that the more remarkable paragraph is the one that immediately precedes it, in which Lincoln starts off by quoting Jesus, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. And he goes on to say, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come, and having passed through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe do unto them by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God have ever ascribed, have always ascribed to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. But if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until all the blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, so it must be said, as it was said 3,000 years ago, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And Frederick Douglass said this is a truly remarkable notion uh, and that this reveals the depth of Lincoln's commitment to racial justice and racial equality to say on an occasion like the second inaugural uh, address of a president, something to the effect that God has punished white people for having enslaved black people. Uh, and the war has gone on so long because the scales have to be balanced. There have been 250 years of unrequited toil, and a lot of a lot of income was generated by that. And it has to be amount of an amount of white property equal to the back wages that were denied to slaves has to be destroyed. Um, and then the notion that that for all the blood, because it, it's we have to remember that this war was incredibly bloody that the total number of deaths uh, uh, was roughly 750,000. 
on a population base that's one-tenth of the population base. So imagine if we uh, lost seven and a half million men in the war against terror. The, the scope of the, the bloodshed was, was extraordinary. Uh, and for Lincoln to say that um, impressed Frederick Douglass very profoundly, uh, as, as well it might. And it wouldn't have sounded out of place in the, in the mouth of a, of a Presbyterian minister, say, uh, reflecting on, on the nation's ordeal of, of the war. But for a president to say that uh, is truly extraordinary. And I think that, that Douglass's understanding of that uh, and how uh, radical it was and, and how deep it was and how, uh, how much it reflected his sense of justice and his compassion for blacks, um, I think is truly remarkable. And therefore, that, that paragraph deserves to be more uh, carefully scrutinized uh, than the more famous final paragraph that immediately follows it. Thank you for calling our attention to it, and thank you for reading it. Uh, Noah Feldman, the second inaugural. I strongly agree with Michael and his emphasis on that paragraph. I would say that that paragraph amounts to um, what we would call a political theology of the United States. And a political theology is the use of religious ideas, distinctively religious ideas, to explain political events and to give them meaning. And I think what Lincoln is doing here is offering a version, I wouldn't call it secularizing because God is in it, but a version of the political theology of the United States that's heavily dependent on Protestant Christian ideas about liberation from sin. So in this picture, slavery is the original sin that Lincoln describes, which is an offense but it's an inevitable offense. It's something that had to happen, much as original sin is seen in early Protestant theology as an inevitable uh, reality that was nevertheless fundamentally evil and sinful. And the only thing that can cleanse original sin is the sacrifice of Christ through his blood. And here, the blood of the Civil War dead is used by Lincoln as a substitute for Christ's blood it's passionate uh, in the sense, in the technical sense, that it's Christ's passion uh, or suffering that forgives original sin. And that's what's going on here. The blood of the Civil War dead who are themselves martyrs is being used theologically to cleanse the United States of the original sin of slavery. And what emerges from this is a new world where it is possible to view the entire picture as in some sense righteous in the eyes of God because it is a judgment, because there has been sin and the sin has been purged. And it's also true, I think, as Michael mentioned earlier, that because Lincoln himself was subsequently assassinated, he came to function in our political theology, a political theology that he devised as a martyr of the process of emancipation and liberation. And then because of the failure of reconstruction and the imposition of segregation and disenfranchisement of black people, it was necessary for the civil rights movement to come around and bring about a further redemption of the constitutional guarantee of freedom. And here it was Martin Luther King Jr. who played that central role. It's not an accident that his most famous speech took place in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And then he too was assassinated, becoming a further martyr of this political theology of the constitution in which a price is being paid, a price of blood and sacrifice is being paid to try to cleanse us of the sins of slavery and of racism. So that is a political theology that I think is still with us and deepened and made even more powerful by the civil rights movement and by Martin Luther King's 
uh, own martyrdom and sacrifice. So that's why we have a Martin Luther King Day today as well. It's part of our official or unofficial, both official and unofficial American theology. Now, I just want to add to that, there might be some listeners who feel troubled by the idea that our political theology is so derivative of Christian stories and ideology. After all, we do have an establishment clause in our constitution and a free exercise clause. And uh, lots of us would like to believe that we have a separation of church and state, although not everybody agrees that that's the way to formulate it. I happen to think that is a good way to formulate it. I think the key point to recognize is that when it comes to the making of narratives, narratives are made, including national narratives, by the people who are living in the country at the time, according to their own moral instincts and judgments. And at the time that Lincoln was speaking, the United States was descriptively and practically a Christian country. There were very few Jews, there were very few Muslims, and it was still at the time also overwhelmingly a Protestant country. Now we are a country of much greater religious diversity. And as a consequence, we've secularized these ideas so much so that we can't even quite recall or realize the Christian origins of this kind of political theology or that we might be troubled by it. And my view is that we shouldn't be troubled by it. Um, and I should say cards on the table, I'm Jewish and was raised Jewish and uh, I'm still very committed to Jewish tradition. But as an American, I'm not troubled by the idea that this political theology of Lincoln's spoke in the moral language that most Americans of the time held and that that moral language was in a sense Christian. I don't think that makes it any less capable of being honored, any less capable of being respected or any less capable of being embraced by Americans today because we're capable of updating and changing our beliefs and of keeping our narratives and making them more inclusive over time. And we have to believe that because if we didn't believe that, we would have to think, not with Lincoln, but unlike Lincoln, that because of the racism and slavery that existed in our origins, we're doomed forever as a country to be just that same group of people. And I don't think we are so doomed. We're capable of change. We're capable of expansion. We're capable of improvement. We don't always do it, we don't always do it right, and we don't always go forward. I think um, King said that the you know the arc of the universe tends towards justice. We want that to be true, but it's not always in a straight line. So we do make mistakes, and we do sometimes go backwards, but we're capable of going forward, and I think that enables us to be more expansive and more open. Thank you very much indeed for that close reading. Diana Shob, the last word on the second inaugural is to you. Uh, yeah, I think it's great that we read aloud both the fourth paragraph and a uh, substantial part of the third paragraph. And I think really the question of the speech is uh, what's the relationship between that third paragraph and the fourth paragraph? His aim is obviously to get to the fourth paragraph, to to make that call to uh, act with malice toward none and with charity for all and to set the task ahead. So I, I think that the theological interpretation uh, makes possible it opens up the space for human charity. Um, I, I don't think I'd actually call it a political theology. I think it's real theology with a political purpose. Uh, but I think it's also important to note that the theological interpretation of the meaning of the Civil War is not presented as a certainty. It is presented by Lincoln as a supposition. If we shall suppose that and if God wills. So it is a, a supposition or a hypothesis, and I think that is part of what protects it from being some kind of crossing of the line between, uh, between church and state or religion and politics. Uh, it also prevents it from uh, being used for sort of purposes of fanaticism. Uh, it's clear, actually, that the theological interpretation is intended to induce 
uh, humility uh, on the part of human beings. And I, I think that the message in that third paragraph is very specifically targeted to three different audiences. Uh, Lincoln is trying to avert the danger of Northern arrogance uh, northern persecution uh, of the South after the war, uh, you know, blaming them as the traitors who started the war, uh, uh, even though they were the traitors who started the war, uh, <laughs> that kind of blame won't be helpful after the war. Um, uh, also, he's trying to address the problem of Southern recalcitrance. Uh, and I think by calling it American slavery, not Southern slavery, uh, not African slavery, but American slavery, by all Americans, all white Americans at least, being willing to share in that blame, uh, he hopes to do what he can uh, to induce the South to, uh, uh, to admit the fault. And then I think that uh, last sentence of the third paragraph, the one that Frederick Douglass always quoted whenever he referred to Lincoln. I think this is true in every uh, reference after the war uh, where Douglas, Frederick Douglass made reference to Lincoln. He always quoted that divine reparations sentence, uh, the, the one about the 200 years of unrequited toil and every drop of blood drawn with a lash being repaid by another drawn with a sword. I think in a way that is what is offered to African-Americans. It is an admission of the nation's guilt. It's an acknowledgement that God was all along on the side of the slave. And it's a, a kind of vision of, uh, of divine reparations. Uh, and the fact that uh, Frederick Douglass so latched onto that passage, uh, I think, is an indication that he, he understood what, what Lincoln was doing there with that, uh, with that line. Thank you very much indeed for that. And thanks to all of you for this wonderful parsing of these centrally important speeches. It's so meaningful to learn with all three of you. We have just seven minutes left. Our only Constitution Center rule is to end on time, but I think that's enough time for one question to each of you and some, some very brief closing thoughts. Michael Burlingham, Bonnie Zedek asks, how did Lincoln react to the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 into voting rights for Black women as well as white women? Was he the friend of Black women as well as Black men? And what final thoughts would you like to share with our friends? We have no direct uh, allusion in anything that Lincoln said or wrote about the Seneca Falls Convention, but he was, uh, I've argued in my book, uh, a kind of proto-feminist, uh, that he he was opposed to the sexual double standard if a, if a husband violated the marriage vows, the, the, the wife had every right to do so. Um, he does, he does uh, in one of his speeches uh, in, uh, running for the Re-election to the state legislature say that uh, he believed uh, that all folks who paid taxes are serving the militia should be able to uh, vote, uh, not excluding females. And sometimes people sneer at that and say, well, no females paid taxes in those days, but widows certainly did. He also refused to gossip about women. Uh, he was famous. Uh, all the men were, were forever uh, telling stories about the lack of virtue of this woman or that for him or the other one. And Lincoln refused to have anything to do with that. He also, uh, as president, was very reluctant to execute any, sign the execution orders for any soldiers who had been condemned to death by a court martial, except if they had been guilty of rape. And then he so showed no hesitation in signing that. And then, then he he took vigilante action. Actually, as this opponent of vigilanteism, actually acted as a vigilante in punishing a wife beater. 
uh, a fellow in, in Springfield had been beating his wife. Lincoln and his friends told him to stop it. He didn't stop it. So they went and hauled him out and gave his wife a belt and said, lay into him. Uh, so I think Lincoln was, was by temperament, a fair-minded uh, man who sympathized with the notions of, of feminism. And then as, as for black women, uh, during the war, the, a question arose whether the widows of black soldiers, uh, the, the women who had been, in effect, wives of black soldiers, should get a pension even if they hadn't been formally married. And Lincoln said, yes, yes, they should be given so. So he sympathized uh, with black women in that particular context. So um, I think that in general, he was sympathetic to the ideas and ideals that were enunciated at Seneca Falls. Noah Feldman, several questions about the constitutional arguments against secession and whether or not uh, Lincoln was correct to argue that it was unconstitutional and your closing thoughts as well. The Articles of Confederation said that the Union was perpetual. The Constitution did not say that the Union was perpetual, but it did say that it would be more perfect and perfect in the technical sense, um, not in the contemporary sense, the way President Obama liked to use it, um, but perfect in the sense of complete. So the argument uh, on Lincoln's side is that if the Articles of Confederation made the Union perpetual and if the Constitution made them more perfect, then it must have been just as perpetual or even more perpetual, and therefore there was no way out. I think probably the most honest and sophisticated answer is to say that in any political union that doesn't include an explicit provision for withdrawal, if some group of people choose to withdraw and others think they shouldn't withdraw, it's very hard to give an objective answer as to whether they're permitted or not, but the effect of it is revolutionary. And remember, to the framers' generation, there was nothing wrong with being revolutionary. Uh, and this was also true for Americans of Lincoln's generation. A revolution was just something that people did. And in fact, Lincoln, uh, when he was in his one term of Congress, gave a speech. He was actually speaking about the Mexican-American War, and he was referring to the Texan Revolution. And he embraced the idea that any group of people, no matter where they were, had a fundamental right to, as he put it, revolutionize. So I think the best way to think about it is that it was a revolutionary act and that people of the time debated whether it was a legitimate and just revolution or an illegitimate revolution. From Lincoln's perspective as the person who was actually running the country, he didn't think he had the option of accepting this as a just or legitimate revolution. And the way he described it was to say that Congress could decide that if it wanted to, but he on his own did not have the authority to say that it was just. He felt he needed to execute the laws and the laws were not being executed in those states. And therefore he felt that it was his obligation based on the oath registered in heaven, as he put it in his first inaugural, to uh, go out and do what it took to enforce those laws. So I think those who want to argue that secession was somehow legitimate can argue that it was legitimate in that it was an act of revolution that was anticipated by the, politi the political theory of the declaration. Those on the other side who want to insist that it was definitively not legitimate also have something to rely on. And that's why there was a war. You know, that's why we fought a war over this. That leaves the question of whether the outcome of the war tells you that one side was right or wrong. That's the might makes right theory of history. Um, it may or may not be true descriptively. It's probably not true morally and normatively. Um, I guess my, my concluding thought on all of this is that it's amazing to me how much we as Americans still care about these questions. And I think this is why we have a National Constitution Center. It's why we struggle to try to get constitutional questions right today. It's because these issues are central to who we are as a people. And that's the best thing you can say about our Constitution. It gives us a mechanism for arguing about who we are that is better than fighting 
Uh, and although we did fight on one occasion, we ought not to do so in the future. And I think the work of the National Constitution Center is to contribute to our not fighting each other. Thank you for those kind words and thank you for contributing so well to that uh, inspiring mission, which I know we all share. Uh, Diana Shobe, the last word is to you. Our friend Colin Thibault says uh, some of Lincoln's speeches are famous for being very short. Was that intentional and does that impact his rhetorical intentions and constitutional ideas? Your thought on his shortness uh, as we close this wonderful program. Yes, and I think I don't have much time left to answer this, so uh, I will try to be as brief as Lincoln. Um, yes, yeah, he he uh, acquires this gift for brevity, uh, and you see it especially in the Gettysburg and the Second Inaugural. I, I think it's very deliberate uh, on his part. And part of it, especially in the Gettysburg Address, I think is that uh, he hoped it would be memorized by Americans. So my suggestion is that we all uh, commit both the uh, Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural uh, to memory. What a wonderful challenge. And friends, let's, <laughs> let's take up Diana Shove's challenge. And if you succeed in memorizing, let's say, either the Gettysburg Address or the second inaugural, then uh, write to me at Constitution, J. Rosen, constitutioncenter.org, and let me know, and I'll send you a congratulations. And uh, we'll let Diana and Noah and Michael know about it, and I know they'll be as pleased as I am that this deep, civil, rigorous, and learned discussion uh, will have inspired you to commit these sacred words to memory. Michael Burlingham, Noah Feldman, and Diana Shobe for a constitutional conversation in the highest possible tradition. Thank you so much. And thank you, friends, for joining us. Look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks. Good night. This episode was produced by Melody Rawell, Lana Ulrich, John Guerra, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Talbert.